are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's scripture lesson is in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh, flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they that know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had the chance to meet, I hope that I could meet you afterwards. Please come up and say hello. We'd love to be able to connect with you and get to know you a little bit. Before we dive into God's word, we'd love just to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? God of mercy, God of grace, God of steadfast love, we come before you this afternoon and we give you thanks Thanks that we are able to do that, that we're able to come into your presence, that we're able to know you and be known by you. God, you are faithful. You're faithful to all of your plans and all of your purposes. So God, we thank you that we have this time together to now to reflect on that and to set our gaze on you. God, would you help us in this moment to set aside distractions and to see Jesus? to see him clearly for who he truly is so that we might follow him in our lives. God, would you transform our hearts and our lives, our minds now as we open up your word and as we leave from this place, would you help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that are glorifying to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. We know I, uh, I enjoy movies all different kinds of movies. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a new Mission Impossible being made. Like the ones with Tom Cruise. You guys know which ones I'm talking about. There's six of them so far. And I like these movies. I know that there's a whole lot about them that are completely unrealistic and couldn't really happen in real life, but they're fun and entertaining as far as action movies go. And they really do live up to their name, Mission Impossible. I mean, the premise of every single one of these movies seems impossible. Like, how is Ethan Hunt going to accomplish this task at hand, most of the time, almost completely by himself, to save someone or save the world? But you know what? Mission Impossible always seems to end up being mission accomplished. As we come to our text today in John chapter 17, we have a, a unique opportunity. We get to peek in on an intimate moment between Jesus and the Father as Jesus goes to him in prayer. He goes to him in prayer right before he's going to be betrayed, right before he's going to experience this bogus trial and be, be brutally beaten and experience a bloody crucifixion. And there are many things for us to learn about and see of Jesus in this text. We see Jesus' heart. We see his focus. We see his determination. 
But we also see that something else that seemed to be mission impossible actually becomes mission accomplished. And it doesn't come about through Hollywood script writers who like to stretch reality, but it comes about through the eternal plan and purpose of our faithful God. This prayer of Jesus that we see, and it's all of John chapter 17, can really be broken down into three parts. We're going to look at the first part today, the five verses we just heard read, and we'll look at the rest of it next week in our time together. But my hope for you today is twofold. One, I hope that all of us will learn something about prayer. That as we see Jesus pray, that we'd actually learn more about what it means for you and I to come before the Father But secondly, I also hope that we'll see the greatness and glory of Jesus. Maybe for some of you for the very first time. For others of you, maybe it's the first time in a long time. But for all of us, I want us to leave today being in awe of who Jesus is. That in him and through him, you can not only know the Father, know the Son, and know the Holy Spirit, but you can be known by them fully and completely. And that it's in and through Jesus that mission impossible, the redemption of humanity becomes mission accomplished. So let's dive into John chapter 17 and may we see Jesus more clearly today. Jesus is concluding this time of teaching and instruction that he's had with his disciples. He's spending these last moments with them before he heads to the cross. And now he turns to his father in prayer. It's likely this is with his disciples present. As we see in verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning what he's just said in the prior verses, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. And so his disciples are likely around listening into what Jesus is praying. And we have to understand that prayer is always personal. It's something that you do before the Father. You come before him in a personal way. And Jesus often spent time in prayer, and he would often go and spend time in prayer in solitude. But from time to time, Jesus also prayed in front of a group of people and saw it as an opportunity to teach. If we remember back to John chapter 11, when Jesus is about to call Lazarus out of the grave, he comes before this group of people and he prays out loud. And he says, he's standing in front of this group of people, and he prays out loud that they may believe that God sent him. Now, that doesn't mean that what we should take from that is that when you and I pray in a group of people, that we should pray in such a way that we're trying to teach everyone around us. I think we've maybe sometimes prayed that way or heard people pray that way, little mini sermons in the midst of prayers. That's not necessarily what we need to take from this, but I do believe that as we listen to one another pray, that we can be encouraged, that we can be helped, that we can be instructed and built up in our faith through the faithful prayers of our faithful brothers and sisters. Not because we're impressed by them, because they pray in a great way. Now we can be encouraged because we hear prayers that drip with the truth of God's word. We, we hear prayers that show really the purpose of prayer, maybe the very primary purpose, which is communion with the Father. We see that even here with Jesus. He says, Father, the hour has come. And he's talking about his imminent death. But, but in this, this, the fact that the hour has come, it doesn't lead Jesus to resignation. It doesn't lead him to reluctant kind of fatalistic acceptance of what lies ahead, but it leads him in that moment to commune with his father. This is a prayer, but it's also a proclamation and revelation. Jesus is telling us something. 
He's telling us that his glory is wrapped up in who he is and what he's done and will soon do. Look at all of verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This isn't just Jesus's hour. This is God's appointed hour. It's a prayer for God's will to be done. And here we learn something else about prayer. God's sovereignty over all things is not a reason for us not to pray, it's a reason for us to pray. See, God isn't a genie in the bottle, which would make prayer wishful thinking at best. God, I hope you can do this, I wish you would do this. No, our God is a sovereign ruler over all of creation. And in this moment, Jesus comes before him and he acknowledges that. And so for you and I, we have to understand that we live and move and have our being in him. He's the one who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases, Psalm 115 says. Which means that you and I can and should come before him with anything and everything. He's the only one who we should come before in those moments that can actually do something about those things. See, the plan that was put into place before the foundation of the world, it's coming to fruition. And this prayer of Jesus in this moment is Jesus' yes and amen to that. Yes and amen. So this prayer isn't a gloomy prayer. As the cross looms large in the very near future, it's a prayer of triumphant expectation coupled with the tender care of a shepherd. We'll see more of in our time together next week. In this section, what we see is that Jesus is praying for himself, but he's not praying for himself in a self-seeking kind of way. No, he's praying for glory, his own glory and his Father's glory. Now to glorify can mean to give praise and honor to someone or something. And in some senses, that's what's going on here in this section. But really it has more of the sense that Jesus is praying that he would be clothed in splendor, that he be clothed in the light and power of God, that he be in an exalted state. Now this is interesting because all throughout the Old Testament, God says that he will not give his glory to another. And here Jesus is saying, God, I want that glory. Now for anybody else, this would be blasphemy, but it's not for Jesus because here what Jesus is doing is what he's done all throughout the Gospel of John. He's claiming to be God. See, Jesus isn't seeking for a separate glory from the Father. He's not seeking for a superior glory from the Father. He's asking to be glorified along with the Father and the Father to be glorified in and through him. Their glory and their relationship is intimately connected. This is a bold prayer for Jesus to make, but it's not an unreasonable prayer based off of what Jesus has already done and what he's about to do. Look at verses one and two again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What's the basis for Jesus praying that the Father would glorify him? Well, part of the reason is because the Father has given all authority over all flesh, over all of humanity to his Son. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Authority over all flesh is about the king and his kingdom. It's about the redemptive reign of Jesus over all things. See, all of humanity is sinful and rebellious. 
we've sought to go our own way to say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I want to be the own, my own ruler of my own life. And that's resulted in a broken relationship with God. It's resulted in the breaking of creation. It's resulted in death, which means that all of humanity is in desperate need of rescue. When you're born into this world, you have a problem that you can't fix on your own. We are dead and in need of life. I mean, if we really think about the effect of sin and what it actually does, it's, it's pretty bleak and pretty dire. It's a seemingly impossible problem. An impossible problem and an impossible mission to bring a remedy about. But that's exactly why Jesus has come. Exactly why he's come. See, Jesus has come with the authority to do something about this. He's come with the ability to bring about redemption and restoration. He's come to bring eternal life to all who the Father has given to him. This is amazing. Before the very foundation of the world, God set apart those who he would make objects of mercy instead of objects of wrath. Those who he would save from sin. Anyone, though, that he saves is not because of their worthiness. It's not because of their abilities. It's not because someone does more good things than bad things. See, sin affects and infects every aspect of who we are. It infects and affects our thinking, that our minds are twisted away from God and towards the things of this earth and not towards our creator. It affects our worship, where we no longer rightly set our gaze and our worship on God alone, but we do it on his creation and on ourselves. It affects our relationships, not only with God, but with one another. It breaks relationships. It creates conflict and difficulty amongst one another. But Jesus... But Jesus came to pull people out of darkness into his light. Jesus came to lead a host of captives out of that jail cell into real freedom. All whom the Father has given, he gives abundant eternal life. And what is eternal life? Jesus tells us in verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, what exactly is he saying here? He's not saying that knowing God is the way to eternal life. Jesus is the way. We, we heard about that in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying here is that knowing God and his Son, whom he has sent, is eternal life. But see, this is where we, as Western, post-enlightenment influenced thinkers need to slow down and pause and be careful. Because you and I tend to think of knowing being about information. We tend to think of knowing as being more about more facts. But listen, people aren't argued into the kingdom of God as they collect more data. People enter into the kingdom of God because they have an encounter with King Jesus. They see him for who he truly is, and it changes everything. I mean, we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of John. If we go back to the very beginning, we see Jesus has an encounter with Andrew and with Peter and with Nathaniel. Nicodemus comes, and he actually sees Jesus for who he is. There's the woman at the well, the blind man, Mary, Martha. The list goes on and on. What happens in those moments? They're not argued into the kingdom of God. They encounter Christ. They see him for who he truly is. 
See, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is about relational knowledge, about relational knowledge. Last week, I was getting ready to go to bed and I noticed that something that's normally on our counter wasn't there. And it was like 11.30 at night. I didn't really need it, but it was just weird that it wasn't there. And so I went upstairs and I asked Amy, I said, hey, did you move, did you move this? She was like, no. And in that moment, I got my phone out and texted somebody because I knew what had really happened. My friend Edward had been over at our house the week before, the day before. And I thought, I bet Edward moved this. So I texted him, I wasn't expecting a response. He calls me the next day and it's like, bro, I totally did that and I forgot the rest of the joke. I forgot to tell you that I had moved it. But you know what I told him? I said, it's okay, I already found it because as soon as I thought Edward did it, I went back downstairs and opened up one cabinet and knew exactly where it was. Now, why is that the case? It's because I know him and he knows me. We have a relationship. There's something there that I know about my brother and he knows about me and we're able to laugh about those things. I didn't have to scour my house or even think about who else might have done this. I knew it was one person and I knew where it probably was. That's what relational knowledge is about. It's not just about information about someone. It's about actually knowing them in a relational way, knowing what they're thinking, knowing what's going on in their lives. And you know what? If we go back to John chapter 1, verse 18, we see that that's the purpose, the purpose and the reason that Jesus came. John 1, 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, meaning Jesus. He has made him known. He's made him known. The second person of the Trinity entered into humanity to reveal the glory of God to us. And he came full of grace and truth, not facts and figures. Jesus came to make the Father known to us so that we could be in a relationship with him. See, sin shattered our relationship with God. Sin separated us from him, but God sent his only son. He sent his only son to redeem us. Jesus came to repair the breach that our sin had created. He came to reconcile the relationship that our rebellion had destroyed. That's why Jesus can say in verse 4 that he's accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. This mission impossible, the redemption of humanity, the fact that a holy God rightfully and justly separates us from himself because we've rebelled against him. This mission impossible becomes mission accomplished because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, something you and I cannot do. And he willingly went to a cross as a substitute for you and for me. On that cross, the righteous wrath of God was poured out on his perfect son for your sin and your rebellion. It's you that's supposed to be up there. It's you that should have the wrath of God poured out on you for your rebellion and me too. But Jesus took your place. And he took my place so that you could know the Father and be known by him. And from that tree, Jesus reigns. He gives life through his death. That means that the cross now is not a symbol of defeat, but of victory, of mission accomplished. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, how can Jesus say that this mission has been accomplished as he's praying this in this moment before he's actually gone to the cross? Is it because he's cocky? 
No, he's not cocky, he's confident. He's not arrogant, he's sure. This is not wishful thinking on the part of Jesus. It's a full assurance that he is and will be victorious over our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. This is why he came. In it is redemption and in it is glory. And I love the contrast in thinking about how the world would go about bringing rescue and reconciliation, how different it is from the way Jesus does things. Jesus enters into enemy-occupied territory, but he doesn't call for insurrection. He doesn't come with might and muscle. He, He doesn't come with pomp and prestige. He doesn't come demanding his own way. No, Jesus comes in the form of a humble servant, and through service and suffering is exaltation and glory. And we can learn something from this for our own lives as well. The world tells us to elevate self over all others. Look out for you. Make sure people know how great you are and all of your abilities so that you can receive praise. But Jesus says to us, the path of humility is really the true path to glory. That sacrifice triumphs over selfishness. See, it's through the heinousness of the cross that the Son will be exalted to his rightful place again. How upside down from the way the world operates. I mean, this is so good for me to remember. When I feel tempted to assert my will and my way, when I find myself wanting to receive praise from people, to be thought well of by others, I'm reminded that Jesus, the one who actually deserves all honor and praise and glory, didn't do that. And in this, Jesus says the Father is glorified Because in this moment, no one else can boast. No one but God. He alone gets glory. So Jesus says, verses four and five, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse five is a profoundly theological verse. It shares a concept with us that if we really stop and try to think about it, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And that's the pre-existence of the Son. The fact that Jesus is not just some mere moral teacher. He's not just a good person. He's the physical embodiment of the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit that has always been. This is the God who we follow. This is the God who we worship, one who can't be fully explained or comprehended. And he's asking the Father to bring him back into his perfect presence and shared glory, the glory that he had with him before the world even existed. I love what's going on here. Do you remember the text in Philippians chapter two? This is, we preached on this during Advent season. If you're doing the five-day Bible reading plan, you probably just read this this week. The Apostle Paul says this, exhorting us. He says, Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This prayer in John 17 is a reversal of Philippians chapter two. 
It's a reversal of what's going on there. Jesus set aside those things to come and be a part of humanity. Now he's saying, I've accomplished God, the Father, what you called me to do, what you sent me to do, so now bring me back to that glory. But Jesus returning to this glory isn't a de-incarnation. He doesn't become unhuman. No, three days after Jesus is crucified on that cross, he would rise bodily from the grave in a glorified, renewed body and ascend to the Father where he still is advocating for you at the right hand of the Father. And one day, my friends, he will come again in bodily form and restore all things. And you and I shouldn't be surprised by any of this. As we read this, as we think about this mission that Jesus came to accomplish and all its grandeur and greatness, we shouldn't be surprised because God's told us he's going to do this since the beginning. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see he said a seed will come and crush the head of the serpent. And all throughout the scriptures, we see God working out this plan of redemption throughout history to call a group of people out of death and darkness into life and light. And he brought it about when, as Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Brothers and sisters, this is indeed eternal life, knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And what that means is that you're going to be made new. Because this mission is accomplished, everything changes for you when you place your faith in Jesus. He gives you a new identity. You're now a citizen of the kingdom of God, no longer a citizen of the kingdom of this world. He gives you a new purpose to live for his glory and his fame and the exaltation of his name to the ends of the earth. He gives you a new heart, replacing a heart of stone that had no life in it that only was about itself and gives you a heart for God and for others. He gives you a renewed mind that where your mind and your thinking was corrupted by sin, it's renewed and transformed to be able to think rightly and truly about God. But it's even more than that. See, this eternally reconciled relationship to God doesn't make you God's acquaintance. Where he just kind of remembers maybe your first name and recognizes your face when you don't have a mask on. No, it doesn't make you God's acquaintance. It makes you a part of God's family. A part of his family in Jesus and through Jesus, you are his adopted son. In Jesus and through Jesus, you're his adopted daughter. Because Jesus came and accomplished this mission, you aren't welcomed in just to the edge of God's kingdom. You're welcomed to his table. We shouldn't be surprised by this. But man, we should be in awe of it blown away by this reality, that if we really stop and think about the the amazing reality of this, that you can know and be fully known and completely known without shame by our awesome and almighty creator. That is insane. It's amazing, unfathomable grace. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, the goal of this sermon series in the Gospel of John that we started some year and a half ago almost 50 sermons in, is to answer one question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And by walking through this story of Jesus' life that John is telling, we want to see Jesus rightly so that we might follow him fully. While this is a prayer of Jesus to the Father, like we said at the beginning, it's also proclamation and revelation. 
It's an opportunity for you and me to have our own encounter with Jesus. And out of that, there are two implications, two applications for our lives, depending on where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. The first one is to believe and be made new. Some of you know that you don't yet know Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've come to gather with us online or in person. And my guess is, at least at some level, you've heard about Jesus, but it's likely been incomplete or inaccurate. Maybe you have a caricature of who Jesus is in your mind, but it isn't the real Jesus. But the whole Gospel of John gives you a grand picture of Christ. And this prayer, in some ways, gives you an overview of all the story that John has been telling has been about, who it's been about. So I want to ask you, do you see Jesus? Do you see him? Do you understand your need for him? All of us are born into this world as rebels in need of rescue, and there's only one remedy to our sin sickness, the one who came on a seemingly impossible mission and accomplished it. Listen, you're here today or watching online or maybe listening to this later, which means that God is at work in your life. It's not a coincidence. It's a happy providence. And so I want to call you to believe today, not in a system, but in a person. Do you see Jesus? For others of you, maybe you've been around the church for a long time. And so all of this is maybe familiar to you, but if you're honest with yourself, Your faith has been more about outward appearances. Maybe it's been more about checking the boxes of do's and don'ts than it has been about a relationship with the Savior who says done. Listen, the very Son of God who came to seek and to save the lost, he calls you by name to come in faith to him, to believe he is your only hope in life and death. And so I want to call you, even if you've called yourself a Christian, but are recognizing you don't actually have a relationship with the one true God, I want to call you also to believe. And in believing, to actually be made new. Now this doesn't mean that everything in your life all of a sudden is going to become easier or more simple. There's a cost to following Jesus in a world that's set against him. But it'll be well worth it because Jesus is the only one the only path to life and joy. I don't believe that anyone can truly encounter Jesus, have a real encounter with the real Jesus and not be impacted by that. So I want to implore you to allow the reality of who Christ actually is to impact you, to see Jesus for who he is and allow that to impact you, to believe and be made new. Now, for many of you, you do have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's a new relationship with him, or maybe you've been walking with him for a long time. And so my encouragement to you is a bit different from this text. My encouragement to you is to rejoice and reflect glory. Let me ask you a question. Is this still amazing news to you? I mean, do you hear this news and think it's kind of old news, and so then it becomes kind of passe to you, you take it for granted. I mean, a life that for many of us is full of activity and full of distractions, it can be easy for this amazing reality that we see on display in this text and all throughout the Gospel of John to be unenthusiastically accepted. We read it, we hear a sermon about it, and we think, yeah, 
cool. And then we move on to the next thing. I mean, that's one of the beauties and gifts of the gathered church. There's a moment in your week to pause and ponder anew what the Almighty can do and has done. It's an opportunity for you to set aside distraction and set your mind and your heart afresh on the one who came to rescue you. I know I need this in my life, in my week. I need to be reminded of this week in and week out. I love gathering with you week in and week out because my faith is fleeting and fickle at times. My heart is deceived and drawn to other things and Jesus is just an add-on. I can forget the gloriousness of my Savior and the greatness of the gospel. I need to hear the word prayed and read and sung and preached. I need to take communion with you. I need to taste and see that the Lord, my Lord, is good. I need that. My guess is that you do too. So I want to call you brother. I want to call you sister to rejoice. To rejoice in the mission accomplished by King Jesus. Rejoice that rescue has come and that you now belong to the Father. Rejoice and give glory. If if Jesus' chief goal is to glorify God, shouldn't that be ours as well? So when you look at your life, is it marked by living in such a way in your family, in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your community? Is it marked in such a way that brings glory and exaltation to God? Do people hear from you and see in you the greatness of your Redeemer? I love Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk's an Old Testament prophet. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, he prophesies this. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. May we long for the day when that is true. And may we do the work by the power of the Spirit to see it come about. I was thinking about a song this week, an old hymn that I sang growing up that made me think of, of this text. It's an old hymn by Fanny Crosby. And this is what the, what the uh, chorus, the refrain says. It says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And give him the glory, great things he hath done. Sojourn in Jesus, mission impossible has become mission accomplished. Believe and be made new. Rejoice and give glory. Amen. You know, one way we can renew our belief and rejoice and give glory is by taking communion together. It's a physical act that brings about spiritual refreshment as we remember what Jesus did for us. We eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. And we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And so as you eat and drink today, may you experience the power and presence of your Savior who called you by name, who made you his own, who will come again to make all things new. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, again, I'm so thankful that you're here today. We would just ask you not to take communion because this is a testifying up for us to who Jesus is, that our only hope is in him. So if that's not yet true for you, instead of eating and drinking today, we want you to take Jesus today, that you place your faith in him. If you have questions about what it means to know him and follow him, please let me know or anybody else here. We'd love to journey with you in that. 
For those of you that will be taking communion, if you didn't grab the elements on the way in, they're on the table out in the lobby. Feel free to go do that after I finish praying. And then you can take communion whenever you feel ready to do so. Spend time in prayer and repentance and rejoicing. And then let's stand and sing and lift our voices to our God and King. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you'd be glorified. We pray, God, that you'd be glorified in us. God, we pray you'd be glorified through us. Because in and through Jesus, you have made us your own. Once we were not a people, but now we are your people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. God, help us to glorify you in our lives. Thank you that the mission impossible has become mission accomplished in and through Christ. God, we pray that you'd lead us to belief, that you'd strengthen us in faith. Help us in the midst of a messy world to rejoice. Help us to see and savor Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.